following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, June 11th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Galatians chapter 2. We are in a series working our way through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches in the region of Galatia. And this week we're kind of in a mini-series within the series. We're spending a few weeks in chapter 2 of Galatians looking at the Christianity that changed the world in the first century and the fact that it's the same Christianity that can change the world in the 21st century. We're looking at what makes it so vital, what makes it so transformational. As you're making your way to Galatians chapter 2, the man who pioneered the translation of the Bible into English, his name is William Tyndale. And William Tyndale, in in working on the translation, said this about the word gospel. Tyndale said the word gospel comes from a Greek word that signifies good, merry, glad, joyful news that makes a man's heart happy. It makes him sing. It makes him dance. It makes him leap for joy. Tyndale said, when you understand the gospel, good news about God's justifying work of you through the life, death, resurrection of his son, it is news that is meant to make your heart sing, make your heart leap for joy. It's this good news of God doing for you what you could never do for yourself and making you right and acceptable in his eyes through his son living the life that you were created to live and dying in your place for the life that you live instead that is meant to make you come alive in heart and come alive in soul. This is the foundational truth of the gospel doctrine. Your righteousness and right standing before God is made possible by his grace through the justifying work of his son, Jesus. Paul has been bearing down on the truth of the gospel in the book of Galatians so far in the first couple of chapters. It's the news that makes his heart sing. It's the news that sets his heart free. Paul has been writing this letter because someone A group of teachers have been coming, and in what they have been teaching, they have been trying to take the Galatians captive again to a misunderstanding of the gospel. And Paul simply won't stand for it. And so when he writes this letter, we come to chapter 2. I had a lot more I wanted to do, but we're not going to do it this morning. A lot more that we're going to get after. He comes to chapter 2. Paul unpacks again this foundational doctrine This foundational truth, this idea of true Christianity that changes the world. And he begins to lead into something in chapter 2 that I want us to see. This foundational doctrine produces in the hearts and the lives of God's people a true, living, vital spirituality that's meant to transform how they live their lives. We looked last week at this whole idea that a Christianity that can change the world is made up of two contents and two realities. True gospel doctrine, and then we're going to connect it with one of the realities that we looked at and mentioned last week, vital spirituality. This true gospel doctrine of justification and righteousness is meant by God to produce in the hearts of his people a vital, 
living spirituality, a transformative way of understanding not just who you are in your mind. Gospel doctrine is not just information that you grasp and you understand and catalog away in your mind. When the gospel takes root in your heart, when the foundation of your heart becomes this true reality of what God has done for you through his son, it produces in you and from you a vital spirituality that changes the way that you live. So this morning, if you've got it now, Galatians chapter 2, we are going to look at how Paul connects this true doctrine and this vital spirituality. And let me set the situation up for you as we begin to look at it. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. You might remember if you were with us, Paul is narrating a circumstance that happened in a time past in the city of Antioch. He says, there was a time when, when Peter came to Antioch and I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain, certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Peter had been living in the freedom of the gospel Prior to believing in Jesus for his righteousness and justification before God, Peter followed all of the cultural laws that God had given his people in the Old Testament. There were certain people he could eat with, certain people he couldn't, certain things he could eat, certain things he couldn't, certain plates he had to eat on and certain plates he couldn't eat on, certain ways he had to wash them, certain ways he had to store them. And after having come into faith in Christ, after grounding his righteousness and justification before God in Christ alone, Peter began to live in freedom. And Peter was eating with people he never would have eaten before. He was eating things he never would have eaten before. He was living in ways he never would have lived before. He was living in the freedom of the gospel. But then these men from Jerusalem came down and something shifted in Peter. When these men came down, something happened in Peter. And Peter pulled away from those Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ that he was doing table fellowship with, living life with, and separated himself from them when these people came down. Paul said not only that, but verse 13, the rest of those that were with him acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Paul's saying what was happening in that moment is the true gospel doctrine that Peter knew in his mind and had believed with his heart was not animating, was not shaping, was not changing, was not driving the way that Peter was making decisions in his daily life. In particular, what Peter knew to be true about what made him right before God, accepted before God, loved by God, forgiven by God, was not shaping the way that he lived that out. When these other people came in, Peter began to think and began to live, began to express in some sense that in his heart, his righteousness and his justification came from what these people thought about him. And Paul says, when I saw this, when I heard about this, when this began to happen, I opposed him to his face. And what Paul says here and how Paul responds here opens the door for us to explore not only this true gospel doctrine that transforms who we are, it helps us walk into and see the picture of the vital spirituality, the true spirituality that Schaefer would talk about that changes the way that we live. Our lives are lived differently because of this true foundational doctrine of who we are before God because of Christ. Watch what Paul says, and we'll see how we can put the two together for ourselves. Verse 14, Paul said, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. 
I'll be honest, that's probably one of the most captivating statements in the entire book of Galatians. We could build the whole series through the book of Galatians unpacking what it means to be in step with the truth of the gospel. If you like to search the words and the phrases the Bible uses and get on your computer and look and see what was behind what we translate like Tyndale would have, you'll find that behind this phrase, in step with the truth of the gospel, is the word that we get for our words like orthopedic or orthodontist. Quite literally, what Paul says is that Peter was not walking with straight feet. Peter was not walking with straight feet in a straight line. Peter's life was not following in line with the truth he knew that comes and grounded him in the gospel. What Paul's saying is that there is a way of living, a way of being, a way of responding, a vitality of life that changes the way that we respond to the circumstances of our everyday that flows out of the gospel. There is a way of living that reflects the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is not simply news, again, that we know with our mind and catalog somewhere in our heart. The gospel is good news that makes our heart leap for joy. And it animates the way we understand not only who we are, but how we live. Like Peter, you and I are prone to walk out of step with the gospel. I tried to put myself in this situation a little bit this week, and I was blown away when I began to think about it. And I began to think about who Peter really was and what was actually happening in this moment when Paul had to confront him. If you think about it and you think about what you know to be true about Peter, you'll remember that Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He was one of the inner three. Not only that, he spent his entire time with Jesus in his ministry on earth, walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, learning from Jesus, eating with Jesus, laughing with Jesus, sleeping in the same places where Jesus slept. He was with him all the time. Not only was Peter one of Jesus' closest disciples who heard the most from Jesus, who witnessed the most work and teaching and miracles of Jesus, after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, the resurrected Jesus appeared to Peter himself. Peter was face to face with the resurrected Jesus. And not only was he face to face with the resurrected Jesus, even after Jesus ascended back into the heavens at the right hand of God, God used Peter in the temple on the day of Pentecost to preach the gospel and for thousands of Jews to hear him preach the gospel and come to faith in Christ. And not only that, it was Peter that God would use later on, Acts chapter 10, through a vision that God gives him to go to a Gentile, a man he would have never been able to go to because of the cultural laws that had been in place, to go to Cornelius to preach the gospel for Cornelius and his household to believe in Jesus and see the Holy Spirit come upon the Gentiles there. This is Peter with Jesus the most, seeing Jesus the most, God using him to see Jews and Gentiles come to faith in Christ. But here's Peter in Antioch, a moment of living in freedom and what he knew to be true in his mind, what he believed with his heart, true confidence in his righteousness and justification before God coming through faith in Christ wasn't animating the way that he was actually living. Something that caught me as I was reading it this week, and, and I know it with my mind, but it began to sit heavier on my heart as I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about us. It's simply this. We need to read this story and understand this story, because if this can happen to Peter, you can be certain that it will happen to you. One writer, in, in thinking about our propensity to, to live out of step with the gospel, 
for what we know to be true to no longer animate with vitality the way that we live, said this. He said, a sleepiness of soul can come upon you and I. And he's talking about the church in, in our day and age. A sleepiness of soul can come upon us in which the status and the pleasures and the comforts and the cares of the world appear solid and stunning and affecting while the truths of the gospel, the truths of the scriptures, they become abstractions. They're unable to grip our heart or guide our everyday activity. And he said, because of this, the greatest challenge facing most of us today is not persecution like it might have been for Peter. The greatest challenge facing you and I today when thinking about what it means to walk in step with the gospel is actually seduction, being seduced away from what we know to be true because of the grace of God through Christ. So what does it mean for you and I to walk in step with the gospel? How does that actually work? How does it begin to reflect for us a vitality of relationship, a true spirituality that's born of the gospel doctrine of our justification and our righteousness? What does it mean? How does it actually work? Well, as tempted as I am to explain to you how I understand it to work, you and I need to look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Because in verse 20, Paul gives us a shorthand explanation of what it means to walk in step with the truth of the gospel and how that reflects the vitality of relationship, the vitality of spirituality that's produced in the heart of a follower of Christ when our life is grounded on the foundation of our justification and righteousness alone in Christ. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Some of you are going to be very familiar with this. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, there is in this verse the foundational truth of Christian gospel doctrine, the foundation for a Christianity that can change the world, and a picture of the vitality of spirituality, the vitality of life produced from that gospel doctrine that changes the way that we actually live. They're both right there. Paul answers the question of what it means to walk in step with the gospel right here. First thing Paul says, simply this, the gospel declares that you are fundamentally different and the way you live your life now on the other side of the cross is fundamentally different. I, Paul says, have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, I have to go to the computer to look this kind of thing up, but some of you know grammar much better than I do. I had to go read this for myself, but some of you read it and you realize that they're the verbs that Paul chooses to use there mean that something happened in the past. A definitive action took place in the past and the implications of that action continue on to the present. And not only do they continue on to the present, but the implications of what happened in the past are permanent. They can't be altered. The verb tenses that Paul used communicate something happened and what happened produced a fundamental transformation that continues on now and can't be changed. 
the redemptive fact, a redemptive gospel doctrine that grounds this vitality of life that Paul is going to explain and that Paul is going to work out for us is simply this. When, by the grace of God, you believe upon Jesus Christ for your righteousness, for your justification, your old self, your former self. Some of you might remember Paul talking about that former self. Your old self was crucified with Christ. It was anchored spiritually on the cross with Jesus. Paul is saying there is something that happened in the past. When you believed upon Jesus for your righteousness, your old self was anchored to that cross with Jesus. And what happened there changes something so fundamental that it continues on in perpetuity forever. Paul says there is a fundamental shift that happens when your old self is crucified with Christ on the cross. That old self is quite literally dead. It's dead. The dominion and the weight of sin upon that old self, it's gone. That old man is crucified. He's hanging on the cross with Christ. Paul says this transformation is so foundational to your constitution as a person, who you actually are, that on the other side of faith in Christ, when your former self is crucified with Jesus, you can say you no longer even live. That man no longer exists. That former self no longer exists. I no longer live. It's that foundational, that transformational. Paul will often talk about the church, about Christians being the bride of Christ, the church being the bride of Christ. You can look at it in the sense that when by faith you place your hope, your confidence on Jesus, that old man is crucified on the cross with him. And now, like in a marriage, the two have become one. You're one now with him. That old man is gone. This changes everything. For so long when I thought about what happened on the cross, when I thought about my old man being crucified with Christ, I used to think that what that meant was that God took Robert and he cleaned him up, he shined him up, put some wax and some polish on him, and on this side of faith in Christ, I was a shinier, cleaner version of my old self, no longer as dirty as I used to be because of what God's done through Jesus. But that's not what Paul says. I was sitting in class years ago in a seminary class when they were talking about this and it was like something parted in the, in, the, in the air in front of me when I saw it. They said, you're no longer just a better version of your old self. You are quite literally, because of the work of God, when you, when you are crucified with Christ on the cross, you are quite literally a new person. And you've got to see that. This is the redemptive doctrine, the redemptive gospel truth that will ground this change in how we live. It's so foundational and it continues on forever that you can say like Paul, I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. What that means now for your vitality of life and your transformation of life is that because the old you is crucified on the cross with Christ, the old you who sought to attain righteousness or right standing and acceptance and forgiveness before God by trying to be obedient to different laws and earn it on yourself, that person is dead. 
And in the new you, Christ by his spirit is alive in you. It means your potential to live differently now is not measured on how smart you are or where you came from or all the experiences that you had. Your potential to live differently now in step with the gospel is measured by Christ in you. Did you catch that? Your potential to live in step with the gospel, to live in step with the truth of God's grace is no longer based on how much you know and how hard you try. Your potential to live differently is based on Christ in you. Let me give you an example. Let me paint a picture that might help you understand what this looks like in practice. How many of you have ever read the Confessions by St. Augustine? Some of you have. You might remember if you've read the story. If you haven't, I'll give you a piece of it. Augustine was a man who pursued sensuality in every way, shape, form, and fashion. If it was an indulgence, he went after it. He had particular addictions that would classify him certain ways if we wrote that book today. And he tells the story of walking down the street after he had become a Christian, after he had placed his faith in Christ. He was walking down the street and a particular woman who he used to spend a lot of time with saw him and hollered at him and said, hey, Augustine, hey, Augustine. And Augustine tells the story in the book that he saw her and he turned around and he was kind to her. He said, hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. And then he literally turned and kept walking in the other direction. And he said, I think she thought that I mistook her for someone else. She, thought, she must have thought I, I thought she was someone other than she was. So she yelled back at me, hey, Augustine, hey, Augustine. And when I turned around, she said, it's I. And Augustine said, yes, but it's not I. Something fundamental had happened. The old man, the former man, had been crucified with Christ. So foundational was the transformation that in face of a similar circumstance that he had been faced with numerous times, Augustine could say, yeah, but this isn't me anymore. It's not I. And the potential to live in a different way in the face of the same circumstance had nothing to do with the fact that he learned anything new had nothing to do with the fact that he had more willpower that day than he had before. There was a fundamental change in his potential to respond differently because what was alive and at work in him was Christ. The vitality that is ours, that changes the way that we live today, is grounded in the fact that it's Christ in us who is at work. Now we have to be careful because a lot of us have grown up in the church and we've learned these verses and we've memorized this verse in particular, probably one of the most popular verses ever memorized by kids in church for decades, Galatians 2.20. But here's the thing, you, you don't have to raise your hand on this one. If you've ever memorized this verse, you've probably only memorized the first half. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And when our understanding of the gospel and the vitality that is to be ours is built upon the first half of the verse, do you know what happens? You get a Christianity like I grew up with in Nashville where it's quite literally, and I'm not being funny, but it's quite true. It's literally Jesus take the wheel. That's what it is. I'm dead, Christ's alive in me. So when he calls me to love this person that's really hard to love, I'm just gonna sit here and he'll eventually give me the love I need to show that person. I'm dead. He's alive. I don't do anything. The bitterness, the, the envy, the pride, the jealousy, the lust. He'll give me whatever I need whenever he wants to give it to me to deal with whatever's there. I just sit back. He takes the wheel. I'm dead. He's alive. 
That's what happens when you don't finish the verse. That's not what Paul is saying. There is a vitality that is born from a confidence in that gospel doctrine. You have been crucified with Christ. You no longer live, but your potential to live today is different because it's Christ in you. It's Christ in you working by his spirit so that Paul will say, the life I now live in the flesh. My life today, your life today, with your family, with your friends, with your coworkers, with your commute to work, with your roommates, with the long lines at lunch, with all the different things that you face, your life today, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, this gospel doctrine, it's not just information, it's transformative for our life. It doesn't just change our identity, it begins to empower the vitality of soul to change the way that we actually live. I mean, we'll deal with this more specifically next week when we talk about how this gospel, walking in step with the gospel, deals with honest answers to honest questions and, and produces a beauty, a relationship between each other. But it gives us a whole new framework for how we think about the life we live. There's a vitality and a joy that's produced in us when our confidence is rooted deeper and deeper in what's true about us because of the gospel. No longer do we look at decisions that we make and even reactions that we give in particular circumstances and only think about them as right or wrong. How many of you do that? I do that all the time. Is what I did right or is what I did wrong? Not that right and wrong is, is bad, but what Paul says is the gospel gives us an entirely different framework where knowing who we are because of what God has done gives us the capacity now to look at the decisions in front of us and look at the reactions that we've made and the circumstances that we're in and say, is what I'm about to do or is what I did in step with the truth of what I know to be true about the gospel? Not is it right, not is it wrong, but does it reflect the beauty of what I know to be true about the grace of God? Not simply is it right or is it wrong, not that that category is bad, but is it reflective of the freedom that I know to be true and live out of because of the gospel? It's a whole new way of understanding the life that we live with an entirely new potential to live in step with it because it's Christ in us and the Spirit at work in us, enabling us. The life we live in the flesh, right here, right now, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The gospel truth that I believed to make me a new creation is the exact same gospel truth I believe to help me understand how I live my life today. It's what I lean into for making the decisions I make today. I could oppose Peter to his face because the way he behaved that day gave evidence that his righteousness, his justification, his confidence for those things isn't coming from what he knew to be true because of Christ. It was coming from the idea that the righteousness he could get from these men was what he really needed. And he was behaving hypocritically. He wasn't living in consistency with what he knew to be true. He was believing that the righteousness he needed was coming from their approval of him, not believing the righteousness that he needed was already his because of Christ. Therefore, he didn't have to move. It changes everything. Let me try to help you with this. this. This was helpful for me. John Piper, you might be familiar with him. He was, he was writing about this particular section of Galatians chapter 2. And he said this about what's happening. He said, the new I, and when he says I, he's talking about the new self. So I think, remember, Paul talked about the former self, the one that was crucified on the cross with Christ. Now you're a new person. So the new I looks away from itself and trusts in the Son of God, whose love and power 
was proved on the cross. From the moment you wake up in the morning till the moment you fall asleep at night, the new I despairs of itself and looks to Christ for protection, motivation, courage, direction, and enablement to walk in joy and peace and righteousness. Did you hear what he said? The new you, the new you where Christ is alive and at work, fixes its eyes on who God is for you and his son, fixes its eyes on Christ for the day in, day out, momentary enablement, joy, wisdom, and courage to live in step with the truth of the gospel, to live in a way that reflects the beauty and the freedom of the gospel, to make decisions and respond to circumstances in a way that's consistent and in line with the gospel, with straight feet. It's a fixing of the eyes, the heart, the confidence, the faith on Christ, alive at work in you by his spirit that produces the vitality, the true spirituality that enables you to live in step with the gospel. You could say that the essence of living in step with the gospel, the picture of this vital spirituality is simply living with your eyes set solely on Christ. Because the moment our eyes shift to something else, the moment our confidence for our righteousness, our justification, for our security, for our joy is shifted somewhere else, you and I begin to walk with crooked feet. We begin to walk out of step with the gospel. Peter's the perfect illustration of this. I love the fact that this is Paul and Peter. This has always been Peter's problem. Peter was confident, hopeful. He was the picture-perfect disciple in some sense when you go back and read the stories as long as his eyes were fixed on Jesus. Remember Jesus showing up on the water? All the disciples are in the boat and here comes Jesus walking on the water. Who put their eyes on Jesus and climbed out of the boat? Peter. I mean, what would you have done? I wouldn't have gotten out of the boat. I would have tried to grab Peter's tunic and yank him back in the boat, you fool. You can't walk on the water. But as long as his eyes were fixed on Jesus, he gets out of the boat and walks on the water. The minute he becomes concerned about the circumstances around him and his eyes shift, what happens? He sinks. Down he goes. That isn't the only time. Sitting there with Jesus the night before he's going to be betrayed and go to the cross. Jesus says, you're going to deny me, Peter. What does Peter say? And I imagine that table couldn't have been that big. I mean, they're right there face to face. Peter, Mr. Passionate, no way. Even if I have to die, Jesus, I'm not going to deny you. Just a matter of hours later, Jesus has been arrested and Peter's looking at Jesus across the court. Someone says, hey, aren't you with him? Whoop, nope. Concerned again for his well-being and what others are thinking and what it's going to mean for him to identify with Christ, his eyes shift. Three times he denies him. It's always been Peter's problem. It's always our problem. That's why the essence of this spirituality, this vitality that is ours, that keeps us in step with the gospel, you can think about it as fixing our eyes upon him, keeping our eyes fixed upon him. It's why the writer of Hebrews will say, fix your eyes, fix them, set them on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. 
Fix your eyes on him, the one who has justified you and made you right before God. He is the author of your salvation. He is the foundation of the gospel doctrine. He is the author of your faith, and he's the perfecter of your faith. He's the one at work by his spirit in you, continuing to work out your salvation, transforming you, enabling you now and today, tomorrow and the next day to keep in step with the truth of the gospel. Fix your eyes on him. We're going to get to see more clearly the privilege that we have to be able to help one another keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Next week when we talk about the beauty of the relationship that this gospel doctrine produces, this kind of Christianity that can change the world and literally confound a watching world, it's the privilege that you and I have together day in and day out to help one another keep our eyes fixed on Christ, that we might stay in step with the gospel. Is the way that we're living, the way that we're spending our money, the way that we're choosing to look at our vocations, the way we're looking at our families, the way that we're looking at our relationships, is it in step, reflective of the beauty of the gospel? Is it reflecting the nature of God's grace, the freedom that's ours because of what God's done? We get to do that next week. Paul is at pains here to help the Galatian church on the edge of being shaken to destruction because of people that want to take them back into spiritual captivity and slavery, to help them to see the full freedom and vitality that is theirs that they have received because of God's grace to them through the work of his son. And one of the graces that is theirs and is ours as the gospel doctrine takes root in our hearts and begins to produce this kind of vitality in our life that enables us to live in step with the gospel, one of the graces that it produces in us is the grace to be able to not be shocked any longer when sinners like ourselves keep sinning. You realize that's a grace, don't you? Paul says you've been fundamentally changed. The old you, the former you, the It's been crucified with Christ. That person no longer lives. The potential you have to live now in step with the truth of the gospel, heart leaping with joy because of who you are and what God's done for you in Christ, your potential to live in step with the gospel now, your power to live in step with the gospel now, it's completely changed because it's Christ in you by his spirit that's working. But you're not perfected yet. You're not perfect yet. So what do you and I do when we realize, when we see, or when we're shown that we're not living in step with the truth of the gospel? Do we make excuses about it? Do we try to rationalize our behavior? Do we wallow in self-pity? Do we wallow in defeat and wallow in condemnation? Listen, friends, the the freedom of the gospel that sets you free to live in the confidence that you are accepted before God because of Christ, the freedom of the gospel also includes the freedom to own when you step out of line, when your feet get crooked. It's a freedom to own your sin, to repent of your sin, and a freedom for you to run to the Father and not away from Him to receive forgiveness every single time. There's freedom to live differently because of the gospel and there's freedom to own and admit all the different times and ways you fail to live in step with the gospel. Friends, your sin, you've got to understand this. Your sin is not going to shock God. 
You and I might get shocked whenever we hear of sinners sinning. We shouldn't be. God is not shocked by your sin. Your sin, past, present, and future, he knew, he saw, and he sent his son to die for. Freedom in the gospel is freedom to live in what he has provided for us through his son, which includes the confidence to run to him, to receive forgiveness, and to leave his presence living in the acceptance that is ours because of Christ. To live enabled by his spirit, to keep in step with the gospel, and every time our feet get crooked and we fall out of line, we're free now to run back to him again. To receive the forgiveness that's ours and to run from him again with joy, heart leaping because of the acceptance that's ours in his son. Again, to live in step with the freedom and the grace that is ours. Friends, I had not thought about it until this week and I was reading and I cannot remember who it was that said it. I wish I could remember, I'd tell you. But they were talking about the freedom that is ours to run to God every time we recognize that our life is out of step with the gospel and to receive the forgiveness that's ours because of the cross. And they said every single confession that we make Every single time we return to the Father instead of running away from Him, every single time we return to Him in freedom to receive the forgiveness and the reminder of our acceptance that comes because of Christ, every single confession of sin is a reminder of the forgiveness that only the cross could provide. It's why it was so essential. It's why every single week as we gather together and we hear from God's Word, we respond together to God's Word by receiving communion. We remember the sacrifice of Jesus in our place for our sins. We take the bread, remembering his body broken. We dip it in the cup, remembering his blood spilled out for our forgiveness. Every single week as followers of Christ, we get to remember and celebrate that every owning of sin, every confession of sin, every repentance of sin is a reminder of the forgiveness and the righteousness that only the cross can provide. And we proclaim with confidence that we have received it by faith in Christ. And we run to the Father so that we can be sent out from here as his people, living from the acceptance that is ours, the righteousness that is ours, living today, living tomorrow, in step, reflecting the beauty of the gospel in the places where he's put us. And so this morning, what we're going to do as we prepare to respond is we're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect on his word, and then for those who have placed their faith in the person and work of Christ, we're going to receive communion. And as you receive communion, you are making a proclamation physically with your body that you have believed upon Christ and you receive the justification and righteousness that is yours because of Christ's death in your place for your sin. And friends, as a follower of Christ, you don't have to run away from that this morning. The gospel frees you to run to God with your sin, to repent of your sin, and to receive forgiveness and right standing righteousness from him. And as you prepare this morning to receive communion, I want to read something to you from Francis Schaeffer. There was a book that Schaeffer wrote about this whole idea of true spirituality born out of gospel doctrine. And here's what Schaeffer says, and I want to help you as you go into a time of reflection. Schaeffer said, said, if you have sinned, it's a wonderful thing to consciously say, thank you, God, for a completed work. He said, when you bring your sin under the finished work of Christ, the conscious giving thanks will bring assurance and peace to your mind. You say, thank you, God, for your work completed upon the cross, which is sufficient for completely restoring my relationship with you. This isn't based on my emotions, 
any more than my emotions are the basis of my justification. The basis is the finished work of Christ in history and the objective promise of God in his word. If you believe in him, and if you believe what he has taught about his sufficiency through the work of his son for restoration, you can have assurance no matter how dark the blot of sin has been. This is the Christian reality of salvation from your own conscience. Schaefer said, for myself, for 30 years, I've been struggling with my own conscience in my own life. I now picture my conscience like a big black dog with enormous paws that leaps upon me, threatening to cover me with mud and devour me. But as this conscience of mine jumps upon me, after a specific sin has been dealt with on the basis of Christ's work, I turn to him and say, down boy, be still. I simply believe God, fix my eyes on Christ, and be quiet. This morning, there is freedom from your conscience. As you fix your eyes on Christ, his finished work on the cross in your place for your sins. God receives you, God accepts you, God forgives you, and you can say to your conscience, be still, be quiet. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to respond this morning. Father, we thank you for the freedom that is ours because of what you've done for us through your Son. Father, we don't want the gospel that we proclaim to simply be information that we file away, even information that we use against other people sometimes. We want the gospel to become the foundational reality for how we understand who we are. And we want the truth of what you've done for us through your Son, the standing that is ours by faith in Him, to produce in us a vitality, a joy, an energy, a leaping of soul and heart with joy that changes the way we live the lives we live today. We want to look at, we want to look at our lives and the situations that you put before us. And we want to see them through the lens of what you've done for us and how we can respond in a way that reflects, reflects our joy and our confidence in your grace. God, we ask that you would do that this morning in our hearts. You know what needs to be done in every heart here this morning. And we ask this morning that you would do that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.